The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 9, 14 through 29. The word of God speaks to us. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Ashley. I'll take it. <laughs> Good evening. How are y'all? Good. All right. I'm going to pray for you. You pray for me. And we're going to keep on going through Mark. All right. So let's, uh, let's join together because we're in this together. Father, I, I thank you for my friends and we thank you for this moment and, and what the, um, the servants on this worship team led us so sweetly into singing is our prayer. We want to start just with adoring you. You're, you're so good. You are so good. So we pray that our hearts would be soft, our eyes would be open to see how good you are in this story. And we just celebrate the fact that, the, that Jesus Christ who walked this earth and loved those struggling, you are on your throne today ruling and reigning alive and well. And Spirit, we know that you're here, even as we just take a breath, as we get started, that's how close you are. If we are in Christ, you are in us, and if we're here exploring the faith, you are around us and drawing us close to God. And so we pray for your help. I need it to help my friends, so just help guide me and give me wisdom in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. I want to begin today by... uh, reading a quote from one of my favorite pastors, y'all know, I, I talk about him a lot or quote him a lot from probably his most well-known book called Reason, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. Dr. Tim Keller, he, he writes this, and I think it would be good to read it just to kind of set the stage for what we're going to look at tonight. Keller writes, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. 
People that go blithely uh, through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either uh, the experience of tragedy or probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she's failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which which should only be discarded after long reflection. Let me read that last line again. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. As Ashley read, um, whether you're familiar with this story or, or whether you're not familiar with the story, it becomes apparent upon first reading that it's a story that addresses doubt. But I think as we're going to examine it closer tonight, take a closer look, it actually takes a deeper look at different kinds of doubt that might not be as apparent upon first reading. We see that in some of the lives of these people in this story, and I certainly saw it in my life this week. And so we have some questions before us regarding faith and doubt. Again, whether you're as we prayed, somebody that's just here exploring Christianity or, or somebody that's a follower of Jesus. Questions like, what does doubt mean for faith? What can doubt look like in my life? How is it dangerous? And what do we do when we find ourselves struggling with doubt, wrestling with it? I think the story in a really helpful way, speaks to each one of those questions. So to begin, I just want to set the stage and so we, we kind of understand the moment and what's happening in this moment. So let's read again, verse 14, quickly. And they came, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So what's, what's going on here is we get our bearings is when, when scripture here reads and John Mark writes, and when they came, they're coming down. Remember last week that, that Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John, and they had had this mountaintop experience, literally, that Jesus took them to a, a mountaintop, revealed himself in his glory. They got to, to see like unveiled divinity of Christ Jesus. Moses and Elijah show up. They have a conversation about what Jesus is going to accomplish through his death and bringing about freedom from sin. And it's this epic moment. And so now they're literally coming down this mountain and then they enter into this scene. They've gone from such great heights now to this moment that feels really chaotic and dark and confusing, right? We've already read that there are people in chaos and in crisis. And then the first thing that Jesus has his sights on is these scribes are arguing with his disciples. And, and I think a way to understand it is, is um, you have these people that show up through the Gospel of Mark, all the Gospels really, and they're sometimes referred to as Pharisees or scribes and Pharisees. And so like all scribes are Pharisees, but all Pharisees aren't scribes, if that might be helpful. But scribes were a, a specific group of men who took the law God's law very, very, very seriously. It was a life calling to record it and pass it down, which is beautiful and important and honorable. And yet, where they kind of got off track was they they didn't just record the law. They decided to protect it by adding additional rules. And when they did that, that that led them down this road of of kind of self-righteousness 
And we just see a frustration between Jesus and these men throughout the Gospels where they have this outward appearance of righteousness, but they're neglecting their inner life and they're fierce opponents to Jesus because they're fierce opponents to grace, like to earn their own righteousness. And so we see that Jesus sees that these men are arguing, these scribes are arguing with his disciples, the nine that have been left behind as he went on this camping trip with Peter, James, and John. And so as he enters into kind of this chaotic moment that we read, Jesus asks these scribes, hey, what are you arguing about with them? We can just imagine that Jesus isn't stoked to see these scribes coming after and arguing with his disciples. You just get the sense that he's being defensive or protective of his followers. In a sense, he's like, hey, leave them alone. If you want to argue theology, you can argue it with me. Like, I'm your huckleberry. I'm here. You and I can talk, right? But the answer to his question, what are you arguing about? It doesn't come from the scribes. They, they stay silent. The question comes from a surprising place, a man who's at the very center of this chaos. And what comes next leads us to the first thing that I want us to see. We're gonna have two points tonight. The first is I want us to see the doubt of the disciples. And and secondly, I want us to see the doubt of this dad. But first, we're gonna look at the doubt of the disciples. And and just to give us a heads up as we explore this this doubt that we see in the disciples' life, it's, it's the one that's harder to see, but frankly for me this week, it was the one I was the most convicted about, and I suspect for many of us, it's going to hit close to home. It's this doubt that is, is rooted in independence and self-reliance as we're gonna come to see. So Jesus asked again, what are you arguing with them about? And this dad answers, Verse 17, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able, and he, Jesus, answered them, oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. See, the heart of the conflict and crisis is this this boy's condition. Verse 21 tells us that this isn't a recent condition in the life of this boy, that this has been going on for a while. His father says, since childhood. And the problem is demonic in nature. It's demonic oppression and possession. And the result of this attack of darkness in this boy's life is that he can't speak. You can read this week parallel accounts of the story in in Luke, I believe, 9 and Matthew 17, I think. It gives us some additional details, but, but Mark actually has the most detailed and the longest account of this story. But all of them together, they paint just a, a heartbreaking picture. This boy can't speak. I believe it's Dr. Luke in his gospel that tells us he also can't hear. And when this evil spirit attacks him in a, in a ferocious, 
despicable way. It causes him to seize and gnash his teeth and foam at the mouth and become rigid. And, and we're going to see that it, it is literally trying to take his life away when there's bodies of water. It, it, in a cowardly, wicked way, tries to cast him in that water when there's a fire. In a hateful, destructive way, it tries to burn this boy. It's literally seeking to destroy his life. And even some commentaries, and we may be tempted to read this and say, hey, well, this is actually just um, what somebody who lived in antiquity, their take would be on epilepsy. And that was really the, the problem this child had. But let's just be clear that the way that the Bible is describing this is not a medical problem primarily, although it manifests itself in medical ways, but it is a spiritual problem. Like, as we've read through the gospel of Mark, like, if, if someone is suffering from a disease or a broken body, like, scripture makes that very clear. And when Jesus is trying to heal someone who can't walk or, or cleanse someone from their leprosy, he's never casting out demons. He's, he's healing their body because he has authority over all creation, as the author of all creation. And yet, many, many, many times in Mark, especially in Mark, we see the beauty of Jesus coming face to face with darkness and just laying waste to darkness, having none of it, picking fights with demons and causing them to, to quiver in fear. And so when he faces something that's the powers of darkness, he calls that out. And when he, in compassion, is healing disease, he calls that out. Sometimes they overlap on occasion, but just reading the story plainly, the Father and Jesus and John Mark recording the history of this incident is clearly telling us that disease is not the primary issue. It is a demon that's oppressing this boy. And I don't want us to, to move past just the, the reality of the heaviness of his life before we try to just wrap our, our heads and hearts around his existence He's essentially trapped inside his body, right? He's suffering so much, and yet he can't speak, so he can't give voice to his fears or the pain that he knows. He's suffering so much, and yet he can't hear, so he can't hear the words of a father who obviously loves him so much, who must have spoken words of, of comfort and compassion and strength, and yet he could never hear them. This is everyday reality. And Luke tells us that this is this dad's only child. And so this dad brings his only son to the only son of God, Jesus Christ. And where he seeks to find Jesus, Jesus isn't there because he's He's been up on a mountaintop with Peter, James, and John. So perhaps this dad, he hears that Jesus is near. He takes his boy. He's, he's perhaps taken a pilgrimage to try to reach Jesus. And he finds out where he's supposed to be. And we can just imagine him arriving. Where's Jesus? Looking for him in the crowd, asking. And, and he just hears, well, he hasn't been here for about a day. He might be back soon. And we don't know how it played out. Perhaps the dad in his desperation went to the disciples and asked, hey, can you please help my boy? Or perhaps the disciples heard he needed help and, and offered and say, hey, we, we hear your son has, has an issue with demonic oppression. We can, we can take care of that. Bring him to us. However it came about, the, the disciples try to cast out this demon and they fail completely, totally unsuccessful. 
And we can just imagine then the scribes who are always on the fringes, always ready to criticize, always watching, that upon the failure of the disciples, they, they begin to chime in. And I just imagine they started to try to stir up this crowd that was there. Hey, look, we've been telling y'all, these guys have no power. They're phonies. The man they follow, he's no holy man. He's a phony too. And the disciples hear that and just being like the, the pillars of maturity they've been up to this point. I'm sure they handled that in a really just healthy spiritual way. Or maybe perhaps they were like, you all shut up, you hypocrites. Like say that to our face, right? And we just imagine them just having this argument that begins to escalate. And it gets heated and heated. And this is the context that Jesus walks in and says, hey, what are you arguing with about them? And then the dad answers. I brought you my boy, Jesus, he needs your help. Your disciples tried to help, they couldn't. And then Jesus isn't asking the scribes questions anymore. He's asking his disciples a question, but begins with a a lament. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you, right? Jesus has already told them, I am on a mission. I am walking in a steadfast way to the cross to lay my life down. I won't be with you forever. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And yet he's beginning this rebuke, this correction of the disciples with this lament. Oh, that oh is a a deep place, right? It's coming from his gut. Oh, faithless generation. Like you guys have been with me so long and you still don't get it. We've seen this as a, a pattern in Mark. Jesus patiently, and steadfastly trying to lead these men and so often them not grasping the truth of what's happening. And in his rebuke to these disciples is, is really the heart of the truth that's here in the story. The fundamental problem at hand for them, for these scribes, even for this father on some, on some level, even for us is a problem of faithlessness. So we've left the mountaintop of the glory of the transfiguration and and we've come in this moment down to the darkness of the valley of doubt and yet Jesus is still going to shine. It's easy to miss where these disciples might be doubting but again, verse eight, there's a clue there the dad says, so I asked your disciples and, and they couldn't cast it out. They were not able to. And I think we just need to remember just a few chapters back. Mark chapter six. It reads this, Mark chapter six, verse 12. Jesus is sending out these very men, 12 disciples, two by two. He's sending them out on the mission field and this is what happens. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed uh, with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so these very men had, had lived out and been just sent by Jesus in, in powerful ministry to deliver people from demonic oppression, and they'd successfully done it not long ago. And so why were they not able to cast this demon out in this moment? And that was their question too. So often uh, after the end of the day of ministry with Jesus and his disciples, we find them in a home, right? Just hanging out, debriefing, talking. They have questions and Jesus is explaining things in detail. And as it is with this day, 
Verse 28 tells us, and when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, hey, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus' answer to them, due to your lack of prayer, you weren't able to heal that boy. You weren't able to help that boy. how How do we process that? What does that mean? How do we understand it? I think almost all y'all know Brandon High, who's our beloved community pastor. I don't know if he's in here or not. Um, but some of you, if you know Brandon, you know that Brandon is, is really athletic, super gifted athlete. And his, his sport of choice right now is a pickleball. He's like really into it. He, he's really good at it. He had only been playing pickleball for like two or three weeks. And Brandon came into the office and I asked him like, hey, how's, how's it going? You enjoying it? And he said, yeah, just in passing, like, like I knew what he was, like I knew what it meant. He was like, hey, yeah, I'm a level, level four player. I have, don't know anything about pickleball, you know, and I especially didn't then. And so I, I, I you know, naturally was like, well, what does that mean? What, what do you mean a level four player? And so he broke it down. He was like, well, in pickleball, there's five levels. One is like novice, five is professional. And I'm three weeks in a four, right? Which literally, th- I think it meant that Brandon was like semi-professional, under a month of playing pickleball. Like he's getting sponsored, you know, on some level. He actually just played at a tournament like a couple weeks ago, like since he's been into the sport like three weeks, or no, excuse me, three months at this point in time, he went down to a tournament in Dallas and won. It was, it was amazing. I think he, the guy on the left with the mustache, his mom and wife were just walking around the court talking trash to Brandon, just, and he was praying for him. He's very holy as he won the tournament, I'm sure. But, uh, and so it, I bring this up. Here's the point. This is what I'm, what, uh, it ties in, I promise. I, I think historically when I read this verse, I thought, like, well, prayer must be like pickleball. <laughs> in the sense of, like, I didn't have pickleball as the example, but there's probably like five levels of to prayer or something. And, like, you know, the disciples were like twos, and really to deal with this type of demon, like, they needed to be four. So they just weren't, they needed to fast two days a week. They needed to have two more prayer times a day, and they would level up and have this strength that they developed, and then they would have this level of spiritual maturity. And I don't want to like totally, I think as we just operate in our spiritual gifts, sure, we can grow in, in our, our strength or in, in just our, our, um, our gifting. We can steward gifts God give us. And yet, I think thinking about this scripture in that way misses it. I don't think that's what's going on. See, Jesus is rebuking the disciples. He's frustrated with the disciples because not their prayer lacked like experience or power. I don't think that's the heart of the matter. I think Jesus here is frustrated with the disciples because they didn't pray at all. Remember, we we talked about the type of doubt that they were dealing with. See, faith is dependence. Therefore, doubt is can take the form of self-reliance and independence. And there's a doubt towards God that we can hold in our hearts that isn't like questioning his existence or compassion or love. There's a doubt that we can hold in our hearts that's rooted in pride and autonomy that just says, hey, I doubt that I need you, God. And this, I believe, is what the disciples 
held in their hearts when they tried to minister to this boy. And I know it's a doubt that I hold in my heart often. And I suspect, if y'all are anything like me, that it's a doubt that you can grapple with too. See, I just don't think it's a stretch to think when those disciples were sent out in Mark 6 that there was a whole lot of prayer that happened in their partnership. If James and John were sent to a city to proclaim the gospel and and heal the sick and deliver people from demonic oppression, I'm sure that on their way there was a lot of like, Father, we don't have the strength to do this on our own. Please be with us. Go before us. We can't do this without you. And they were really aware of their dependence, I suspect. And God did move. And yet they experienced ministry success after success, after success. And then here in this moment, just a boy is brought before him, just another demonized boy, been there, done that. And they think in their own strength they can handle it and they learn a humble lesson from the Lord that they can't handle it in their own strength. They doubted their need for God's help. I was thinking this week about um, when I began to pastor, and that was never my plan. Um, it was a surprise. And, and so I never thought about things like officiating a wedding. And so when that was presented to me as something I needed to do, particularly that scenario, I was um, deeply, deeply scared. <laughs> I just thought about like the 27 ways I could go wrong, you know? Um, and I was so nervous. Let's say this is 2009 about officiating my first wedding. And I, it was a couple that was really precious to me. I was friends with both of them before they had even really met and saw me at church and fall in love. And their names were Adam and Sherry Pratt. And I got to officiate their wedding in a backyard off of Sorghum Mill and Kelly. And I just remember leading up to that, but particularly the morning of, just being on my knees, just praying, just beseeching the Lord, like, I cannot do this with, without you. I need your help. You know, it was just so desperate for God to, to use me to just be a, a decent pastor in that moment felt so underqualified. And the truth is, y'all, that was the best wedding I ever did. Best wedding I ever officiated. I've officiated some glorious ones, you know, and this sweet ones, yet that one was, felt like a revival, you know? And, and that, I'm not gonna claim that that was all my prayer, but certainly, like, it didn't, didn't hurt, you know? I was certainly dependent. And yet, what I became aware of, and Anna was laughing at me at the 11 o'clock service because she was at this wedding. About two years later, 50 weddings later, like, I felt really competent. I'd gotten a lot of positive feedback about officiating weddings. And I rolled into one wedding downtown, let's say 2011, my 30th wedding to do that year. Had, had the playbook, I knew what I was doing. And I, I don't recall not praying, but I feel pretty confident. I, I felt like I didn't need God to help out and I, I could handle it on my own. And I pray that they don't remember it quite like I remember it. Um, that it was just a glorious day, but I just remember being able to relate to the disciples here and just not really being much help. Telling people to stand up and sit down at the wrong times, mixing up man and wife at inopportune times, you know, in the, in the liturgy, more often than not, just not feeling like a pastoral presence of peace. And it was a, a hard lesson for me that important things 
There are things that are beautiful and glorious, and there are things that are delicate. There are things that are precious that we're all called to walk in or lead in and serve in, and they all are far too important to approach and live out in our own strength. They require a belief that we need God. And this applies to so many areas, right? I'm asking myself this week, like, what in my life is important, but I'm approaching it in a way where I have no dependency on God? And that's kind of like this hard question to answer. So if I dial it down and, and try to use this as a, as a tool of exploration, I ask myself the, the question, hey, where am I not praying? Am I praying with and for Anna for our marriage? Am I praying with and, and for my children about their life and my parenting? Am I praying with and for my gospel community? Am I gathering with them and just talking and in, in 30 seconds at the end being like, well, let's throw a Hail Mary prayer up because Jesus heard all this? Or is there actually time together specifically in discipleship group where we really are praying together? A real helpful resource that I just felt invited to return to this week that you may or may not be familiar with just regarding prayer because that seems to be something that I, don't, I think almost every believer I know, if I ask them, hey, would you like to grow in your prayer life? They would all say, yeah, I would, I would love to do that. And I feel an invitation to do that. A real practical tool that I would invite you to, to look at, it's a book. And I use that term loosely because it's 48 pages. So it's a book pamphlet. I don't know. But uh, it's called Enjoying Your Prayer Life by Michael Reeves. If you're an audiobook person like me, it's 22 minutes to listen to. Um, and so it's a, a real helpful, beautiful, catalytic resource to, to give you some tools to um, enrich your, as the title says, enjoy your prayer life. So that's all point one the doubt of the disciples. Let's quickly look at the second thing I want us to see, the doubt of a dad. The doubt of a dad. Verse 19, Jesus answered, the most faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. I love that. Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he, the dad said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. So really confirming that this boy's ailment, what afflicts him, isn't primarily a, a medical issue, but a spiritual issue of oppression from darkness. In the presence of Jesus, this demon, it begins to kick and scream and throw a fit and throws this boy into this trauma and this attack. And I'm just reminded of the beauty of part of the mission of Jesus in this moment. We see it again. The apostle of love, John tells us in his first letter to the church, 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that's what he does in this moment, in this dark valley of doubt. And, and we see that as he 
approaches this father that Jesus is just so compassionate and kind, right? How long has the child been this way? How long has this been happening to him? That isn't like a doctor with a bad bedside manner with a clipboard, like, let me get the facts straight. Let me get the formula lined up. Like, how long has he been suffering? No, this is Jesus. Like, he doesn't have to know. With a word, he can just lay waste to this demon, and yet he wants to know. He cares. He's looking this dad in the eye, and he wants to know his story. He wants to see the reality of how long this father and son have been suffering. And the answer, once again, is heartbreaking. Since childhood, he's tried to kill him. It's a reminder of the heart of the enemy to steal and kill and destroy And yet this father holds out hope. That's why he's there. And he says, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. This dad has faith, does he not? He's, he's taken his child to Jesus. He's sought out Jesus. He's, he's believing for deliverance for his son on some levels. And yet at the same time, we hear it in his plea, he's struggling with doubt too. They're not mutually exclusive. He's holding them both in his heart, a belief that Jesus can heal and a hope that Jesus can heal and a doubt. Jesus might really not be able to heal him. And all that he's carrying in his heart. But if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. I was encouraged this week to kind of compare and contrast this dad with a leper that we saw earlier on in the book of Mark. Actually, chapter one of Mark, if you guys remember weeks ago, we studied this leper who comes to Jesus in Mark verse 40, and and he has doubt that he's carrying in his heart to this leper, but it's unique. And I think as you compare this leper and this father, you get clarity as to where both men are as they approach Jesus. And we can see ourselves in either or both of them at different times. And as the leopard com- leper comes to Jesus, he's imploring him and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus in compassion stretches out his hand and he says, I will be clean. But notice the difference between this dad. The leper is saying, if you will, he believes that Jesus has the power to heal him, but he's uncertain about the compassion and the heart of Jesus. That's the doubt that he has. And yet this father, he knows that Jesus is compassionate, but he has doubts about the strength and the ability of Jesus to actually be able to do anything. And so he says, if you can, And of course Jesus can. We've seen Jesus already in Mark deliver a demon where he's not even near the person that's being oppressed. With a word, he could take care of the demon, but Jesus is seeking to do something that's not just breaking down the forces of darkness. He's trying to build up the faith of this father. And so in compassion, he points out the doubt that this dad is carrying in his heart. And Jesus' reply begins to poke on that. He says, if you can. And I just, you know, I wasn't there, you know? Um, But I suspect, for what it's worth, that 
if we read that verse like in a way that Jesus is annoyed and put out and offended, like if you can, you know, he's scoffing, I think we're probably missing the heart of Jesus. I think with a solemn smile on his face and with love and compassion in his eyes, he said, if, if I can, All things are possible for the one who believes. All things are possible for the one who believes. And that doesn't mean that the gospel is the gospel of the Christian television evangelist that is telling us if we can name it, we can claim it. The overt versions of that, or even the subtle more nuanced modern day suburban versions of that, which is just like because I'm a Christian I'm entitled to a life of comfort all the time. And it's certainly not some like weird new age vision board, like I'm just going to be positive and manifest these things in my life that I am seeing more and more in the life of my friends who aren't Christians. What Jesus is saying that's better news than either one of those things, when he says all things are possible for one who believes, that the reality of the human experience of frailty and brokenness and darkness. The divide from that to the love and compassion and and power of God. What bridges that divide is a gift of God, which is faith. Faith, God's gift, it brings us close to the God who saves. And so hearing that, we get this amazing reply from this incredible dad. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. What a prayer. When I experience doubt so often, like, I feel like I've blown it. And I feel like, Faith and doubt are mutually exclusive. And when I am struggling with doubt in some ways, I hear a voice of shame that lies to me that that really just tells me that I need to actually move away from the Heavenly Father and not move towards Him. And I don't know if you guys can relate to that, but I think we all struggle in some ways with how do we deal with doubt? Are, Are faith and doubt mutually exclusive? I read an article this week by an uh, apologist, an author. She's got a podcast, and she's just incredibly smart, named Elisa uh, 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 Childers, I believe is how you pronounce her last name, or, or Childers. And she wrote this article that it's uh, really a part of her own story. And uh, it, the title of the article is, I Never Expected to Doubt. But this is what she wrote. She says, in the Bible, faith means trust, not blind belief. We all put our trust in various things every single day. Every time we drive our car across a bridge, we trust it will hold up like it has many times before. My mind is going to exiting, you know, onto Hefner Parkway off of the turnpike right now. It's scary every time. She goes on to write, we trust not because we have 100% proof, but because we have good evidence to believe the bridge won't collapse. Doubt isn't, this this is what I love. Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. 
See, what she's saying here, and I think what Dr. Keller said at the beginning, is that there's a real faith that doesn't turn a blind eye to the doubts we might be wrestling with, but it draws close to God in the midst of those doubts and lays those doubts at the feet of the cross, knowing that Jesus is working in us and through us, and he is not intimidated or scared of any questions we have, how big or small, and he meets us in our doubt and helps us grow and mature so that through them on the other side, our belief and our faith is stronger. See, what the disciples did is, right, they had this unique, independent, self-reliant doubt that, that by nature drew them away from God. And we see the beauty and maturity and wisdom of what this dad does that's altogether separate. He moves towards Jesus and he says, help me with my unbelief. It's a simple, powerful, yet desperate prayer that Jesus readily answers. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw a crowd and that they were running towards him, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. What I love about this story is it's just kind of like this microcosm, a glimpse of just the gospel. Jesus comes down from a place of glory. He comes low into a dark valley where there's people being oppressed. And Jesus confronts darkness and he takes people who are dead and brings them back to life by his grace. This is the gospel. So, as we close, like what do we, what do we do with this practically? When we are wrestling with doubt, how can we learn from this doubting dad? Where there's a guy named Bobby Conway, he wrote a book called Doubting Toward Faith. And um, I came across the resource this week and he just essentially makes the point in the book that doubting is directional. That like the disciples, we can struggle with doubt in a, in a way where it takes us from God or we can struggle with doubt like this dad did where we are encouraged to doubt towards God. And what does that look like? Where, like we've been talking about, it looks a whole lot, first and foremost, like prayer. Coming to the Father with our doubt and asking for help, for reassurance, for evidence, for presence. We can love God in the midst of doubt and have him meet us in the midst of our doubt, bring clarity, strengthen us. And we can love people being in gospel community with our doubt. May we be a church where being honest about doubts we have isn't something that we even accidentally shame one another about, but it's something that we love one another in where we can take things that we're struggling with to our brothers or sisters, and we can walk with each other towards Christ. We don't need to be afraid of doubt. Jesus can stand up to any skepticism or questioning, uncertainty, or even like the disciples, self-reliance we carry in our hearts. He did it with his dad. He did it with heroes of the faith like Thomas and John the Baptist. He can do it with us. He will and does. Let's stand and pray.
Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us do what we just spoke of. Wherever we are tonight, whether we've been walking with you for a long time, we're in Christ, or whether we're just exploring the faith, we all, in unique ways, are carrying some doubt in our heart or to differing degrees. That's okay. But we pray that you, Spirit of God, would help us bring those doubts to you. You would give us wisdom and lead us. And we know that you're speaking, and so we pray that we would be able to hear. We thank you for your compassion, Jesus, the same Jesus who is in the heart of this story, so full of love and kindness that, Jesus, you are not gone. You are alive and well on your throne, ruling and reigning and still praying for us in this moment. So we honor and celebrate you. When we pray this in your name, God's people said, amen.